Welcome aboard the Coastal Connection. I'm Jennifer Ritter Guidry, your guide for this trip through Louisiana's coastal wetlands. You know, being at a moment in history where we're living through this mass extinction event, I know so many people that never intended to become biologists or conservationists or activists now are all doing it just to try to do their part to try to help. We're waiting for Brandon Ballinger to call us from his landline in Arneville, Louisiana. Brandon lives in the country with his family. They've developed something of a homestead called Atelier de la Nature. And not only do they have a self-sustaining farm for themselves with lots of livestock and a a very uh, generous garden, they're also expanding their property footprint. And they just recently acquired some more property adjacent to their current home plot and they are building out sample wetlands um, so that they can oh here we go he is calling us right now hello hey how's it going good how are you uh we're doing pretty you know pretty great like we're so fortunate to have land (laughs) you know i have all these we have all these friends in New York and Paris and all over the place, Milan and cities that are just like totally trapped in their apartments. So just to be able to, to be outside has been really great. And um, uh, So my name is Brandon Ballinger. I'm an artist and a biologist. As an artist, I'm a, I'm a visual artist. Uh, I have a studio that I used to be based in New York City and for the past um, four and a half years have been based here in South Louisiana um, and live uh, between the villages of Sicilia and Arneville. And then as a biologist, my background is I'm a frog guy, um, but now I'm working in the fish lab as a postdoctoral research associate at Louisiana State University in the fish lab. Yeah, so what do you mean by I'm a frog guy? Well, okay, my background academically as both artist and a scientist is mixed. Um, as a scientist, I was very, very interested in my research, uh, looked at amphibians, and specifically anurans, which are um, frogs and toads, as bioindicators of water quality, and spe- more specifically, their development in complicated agricultural ecosystems. So I'm really a frog guy. I love amphibians. Um, so I spent... Um, most of my adult life um, looking at things that could impede their development um, as they're going. So basically tadpoles, as their limbs are developing, what can go awry? As some of you all might remember, in the middle 1990s, there was a situation in the Midwest, uh, specifically in Minnesota, where there seemed to be this uh, plague of malformed amphibians. And so there was quite a bit of headlines um, trying to figure out what was causing that, and that's the kind of research I got really, really interested in. And initially, the thinking was that this kind of malformed frogs, these frogs with missing limbs and extra limbs, were being caused directly by chemical pollutants. Um, however, after more than a decade of research, uh, labs around the country found different causes, that it wasn't as simple as just a, as just a chemical, but in fact complicated ecosystems like farm ponds um, with lots of nutrients and runoff and then other agrochemicals can create situations where food chains aren't working quite the way that we would consider natural. 
And so you end up with things like dragonfly larvae that are in really high abundance that can nip off the limbs of developing tadpoles, creating limbless frogs, or frogs with uh, re reduced limbs, and then also types of parasites that can cause supernumeric limbs in some of those same farm ponds. So that's what I got really involved with and um, did a lot of research looking at farm ponds in Middle England and Southern Quebec, as well as in New York State. Every day after school, and if I had the opportunity, I would skip school so I could be out in a pond or a stream catching something and observing animals, but then I would bring them back and draw them and um, take measurements and then set up these terrariums and aquariums. And, and at some point, uh, I had to move all my aquariums from my room upstairs in my parents' house to the basement because my parents were afraid that the, the roof was going to cave in, like the floor was going to cave in. There was so much weight. <laughs> so they moved me to the basement where I set up a lab, and I, you know, I'd, I'd spend um, as much time as I could just studying those animals outdoors as well as indoors and, and watching their behavior. And, but at the same time, drawing them and painting them, so it was really, um, and then later photographing them, it was really always integrated for me. It was just tricky when it came to academically being able to figure out how to do that. Um, back when I was, when I was in, uh, going to undergrad, it was really hard to find interdisciplinary programs where you could do both art and science. But I did manage to find a graduate PhD program in England uh, and Switzerland which forced me to do both. So I had to focus on the, the, the science work, but I had to integrate a, a cultural context for some of the science, so a, almost a philosophical standpoint, which enabled me to be able to look at the way that art could inspire people to learn more about amphibian conservation and, and basically like amphibian natural history and ecology. And that was through the University of Plymouth and the Zurich University in Switzerland. But now what I was going to say is the encouraging thing is if there are young folks out there that are listening to this, um, there are many of these programs that have emerged that are either interdisciplinary or cross-disciplinary or transdisciplinary. And it's certainly a huge trend in, in Europe as well as Asia, and it's really starting to take, a, take off here in the United States and uh, Canada as well. Sure. Um, I guess that's part of it. It's, uh, if, if you have a chance, folks, just um, maybe uh, Google some images of um, these works that I call Malamp, M-A-L-M-A-M-P, with my name, and you'll see some of these frog images. But um, inevitably, what happens is, as I was doing the science, um, the science is very straightforward. You know, I have to be as analytical as possible and, and as detached as possible and try to, you know, step outside and ask uh, very rigorous scientific questions. But at the same time, when I finished the science, what I found is I had this strong desire to create art about that process. And so the art really was kind of an after fact of that. But the, the really interesting component is, as I was creating these artworks to kind of tell that story, I got really inspired to do more science, and I think the art actually helped me look at the, some of the scientific research in a different way and ask different questions. So, and, and that's still the way that I kind of operate. I, I, I find myself um, doing the, the kind of scientific research, uh, which is very analytical, and then at the same time, 
strong desire to create art, and as I'm creating art, I have the strong desire to go back to the science and ask questions in a different way again. And I'm, I think in a sense, um, you know, all human beings are both artists and scientists in different ways. I mean, we're not uh, full-on, we're not completely one or the other. I mean, we, we approach the world every day analytically, uh, but we also approach it poetically. And I think that's that wonderful complementary part of our of what it means to be human. What is your preferred medium or media? Yeah, let's see. It's, uh, I work in lots of different medium, um, including actually showing preserved specimens. So, um, for example, with some of the amphibian work, as part of the scientific research, I do a process called clearing and staining. So this is a, it's a chemical process, it's a scientific process where you take a preserved specimen and using a series of stains and, and other chemicals, you literally can um, stain cartilage and bone tissue, hard tissues, uh, so that they turn out bright red or blue, and then the surrounding tissues end up transparent. So what you end up with is something that looks like a brightly colored x-ray. Now from the scientific standpoint, uh, that can help me better understand the kind of way that that deformity happened and when, where the energy was really going in the, the kind of development of that organism. But from an artistic standpoint, aesthetically, they're just so compelling. Uh, I mean, they're just mysterious, so it adds a layer of abstraction when you're looking at them, um, because it, inevitably you're looking at like a, a deviation, right? So. Uh, you're looking at a frog that's got extra limbs, which is, you know, sad. It's 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 tragic, but by doing the clearing and staining, it adds a layer of abstraction, so it's less of a monster. And also, what I do then is I've got this specimen that you can see through. I'll photograph them or scan them, and then I'll create a photographic print, a single photographic print of that one animal, so it becomes a a reliquary of that short-lived life. So in a sense, it's a memorial to that one individual frog that existed at that moment in history. Um, it's also printed at a scale so that it's roughly the size of a human toddler. When I printed them in the past, I made them too large a few times, and then they were monsters, and I didn't <laughs> want people to be afraid of them. I wanted people to feel, you know, have some kind of emotional connection to them, like empathy. And then I printed them really small, and then people walked by. But at one point, I printed one about the size of a, maybe like a four- or five-year-old or a three-year-old. And then there was this immediate attraction, like you wanted to kind of get closer and almost like hug this creature, <laughs> this other this other being. But then you're kind of pushed away because then you see kind of what's going on uh, in the picture. And that, that that's really what I hope happens with the, the frog artworks is people look at them and they're... They're attracted, and they want to learn more, and they get a feeling, um, and hopefully that, that, that feeling is empathy, and then you want to try to learn more about what's happening with them. And uh, one of the reasons why I got involved with amphibians in the first place is um, I always wanted to be a fish guy, and then when I was in high school, the first reports came out about amphibians disappearing all over the world, and I got so captivated with that. Um, it's now we've lost about, you know, we think about somewhere between one-third and, and 43% of the global population of amphibians, all pretty much within my lifetime. And I just, not even as a biologist or an artist, but just as a human being, the idea of losing 
that much of any one group of animals just compels me to want to do something. So now the, the really the origin of, of wanting to go into amphibian biology, but also work with these group of organisms in terms of art really came about as, you know, what could I do to try to help people understand that this issue was ha- happening? And then hopefully what are the things we could do to try to help conserve amphibians and other species? My wife um, is a food educator. She's really interested in sustainable food. Uh, we have two little people. We had one when we moved from Brooklyn, New York, to South Louisiana, and then we had another little person here. And the four of us, and we bought a little tiny house that had nine acres of soy field in the back. And at nine acres of soy field, the first thing we did is take the soy out and started trying to create habitat. So tried to replenish the soil and tried to look at what habitats were there probably historically. And so what we've been doing is planting um tons of different species of plants, um, but over 1,300 baby trees, and tried to create Cajun prairie habitat, um, small wetlands, and now a large wetland in the back. And what we've seen is just remarkable in the course of, you know, a little over um, three and a half years of that kind of intensive planting, just an incredible amount of wildlife has come back already. And it's so encouraging in the face of, like, all of the the negative stuff you hear about going on environmentally, the fact that literally kind of you could have a backyard, start to fix it up, and then see all this life return, I think, is just so um, such a positive uh, experience and and a, a great way to show that if two crazy artists from New York City that had no prior experience doing anything like this could do it, anybody can. <laughs> and... Um, so now that's kind of expanded. What we've done is we call it the Atelier de la Nature, which is nature's workshop. And the Atelier is a funny French term because the Atelier can be one, it could be either an art studio, it's another term to describe a laboratory, a workshop, even a kitchen has been described as an Atelier. So, and that's really kind of what we've tried to do. We try to do the restoration, but we're also doing a lot of like public educational events. So inviting people to come explore nature through art and science and food. Um, We also do festivals. So we do a big Halloween festival every year called the Halloween Art and Nature Festival. And that includes about, I don't know, last year I think we had about 40 different organizations that were there. All the activities are free. Nobody's selling anything. Everything is about kind of uh, engagement and sharing knowledge with each other as well as live music and food and haunted hay rides and all kinds of great, great stuff. Um, and then we do a spring festival and then usually a summer camp. And then also what's happened really recently is we were able to, um, through the support of patrons and, um, and art, basically, um, able to procure more land. So we're up to about 25 acres. And we encourage people to come out. We're putting in um, trails. And we're even trying to put in a handicap-accessible trail that'll lead to a big wetland at the back. And, um, you know, come out and visit us. We want to make our own little nature reserve and leave it open not only to all the other great special creatures that share our, you know, (laughs) our our area here in South Louisiana, but everybody that wants to come visit and just take a look and, and learn more about them. Yeah, and do you also have a sculpture garden? I know Marla... That is the plan. Yeah. Yes, that's been... That's the 
the next big phase. And we have our first, we were supposed to have our first opening a couple of weeks ago. We had to postpone because of the virus. Um, but we had an artist that's come in, Marla Kresovich, and what she's a Lafayette-based artist. And so the idea was we'll have a nature reserve and eventually an ephemeral art sculpture park. And what that means is ephemeral art, meaning that it's art that will last for a few years. So it won't be a giant steel sculpture necessarily, but it'll be something that's made usually out of natural materials and materials that are found on the site, um, made with community members often. Hopefully Marla worked with Girl Scouts and Cub Scouts and other folks that showed up one of our public days and created this sculptural work um and i hope that soon you'll all be able to come visit it <laughs> right. so we're kind of just you know like so many other folks out there we're kind of all just waiting to see how everything folds out to um you know see when we'll be able to open back up again but those are those are our plans for now we have one sculptural work that's basically finished and, and ready to be presented and then be inviting artists to come in and, and work with community and build more works in the, in the future, hopefully soon. Talk about what brought you to Louisiana to begin with. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So, um, as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm, you know, on one hand, my first desire was to become an ichthyologist as a kid, and uh, now, even though I'm not really, I'm a, I'm a herpetologist working in the fish lab. <laughs> I'm not uh, a trained ichthyologist, um, but I'm working on it, and so. Right in a few days, I'm not sure when this is going to air, we're going to come up on the 10-year anniversary, and it's uh, April 20th will be the 10-year anniversary of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which in many ways was the, one of the largest environmental disasters in global history, certainly in the United States history, and uh, not by volume, but by volume in a short period of time, the largest oil spill in U.S. history, and... Um, Still, even though we're, you know, it's being overshadowed by the coronavirus, I think it's super important that we really uh, take some time to remember, you know, the, the huge impact this had on the Gulf of Mexico, the biological community, but also just the social community. How many individuals were impacted by this bill? How many people lost their lives, first of all? Mm-hmm. And then secondly, how that, that just had this huge ripple effect um, with folks that are selling seafood, collecting seafood, on and on and on. And the fact that even 10 years later, there's still so many questions that we're trying to ask. So uh, Jennifer, as you said, how did I get down here? Well, a lot of it was I ended up volunteering during the oil spill and trying to work to rescue birds and other wildlife and then found myself um, 
collecting lots and lots of different uh, specimens and then being sent different specimens of, of basically like bycatch or organisms that were found um, dead as a result of the spill or shortly thereafter. And But also I met this incredible group of folks from, you know, basically New Orleans and Grand Isle and Barataria Bay and Plaquemines Parish and Sippermore Point and Avery Island. And I just, uh, I met all these wonderful people. And um, although as a child I'd been to New Orleans as a kid, I, I really didn't know that much about other parts of Louisiana. Um, and I, I got to spend a lot of time like um, exploring different areas of South Louisiana just really fell in love with the community and, and the nature and with the biodiversity in the Gulf uh, after the spill and trying to think of ways that we could use art and combined with science uh, to do community engagement to kind of ask questions like that and, and fortunately um, found some funding through National Academy of the Sciences to be able to explore that. And one of the first things that we did from the science standpoint is when I started working in the fish lab is we did a big analysis of museum records of endemic fishes of the Gulf of Mexico after the spill. So endemic means like a species that's found in one place on the planet, nowhere else on the planet. So it's endemic to that particular environment. You can't find it anywhere else. And what we found is out of the 77 species that we consider endemic to the Gulf of Mexico, these are just fishes, that there were 14 that hadn't been reported since the 2010 spill. They've been reported before, but not after. Now, these are just museum uh, specimens, so mm -hmm. it's not saying they're extinct, but it did lead us to say that they were missing, and we started to look for them. And we did that through a whole series of like public programs, like trying to encourage fishermen and shrimpers and kids in schools and other uh, organizations to kind of keep an eye out. So one of the first things that happened is we made a we did a scientific paper presenting that information. Then secondly, a, a poster, a wanted poster with these fish, with a almost like a hotline number that you call. It was just you know I put my oh, phone no, number. I on love there. that. I love it. Fish. Please, give us a call. Please <laughs> call our lab. You know. And then the LSU email address and stuff, and that was that was really a great experience because it was a good way to start dialogues with shrimpers and fishermen, which often uh, don't work with the like members of the scientific community, or if they do, it's often at odds because um, many of the many of the fishermen and folks that I worked with um, instantly they saw me and they're like, oh this guy's going to tell us we're not supposed to be catching this right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, when I, you know, instead when I said, you know, look, no, I'm just wondering if you've seen these fish, um, you know, it, it really created a different dialogue. There was the science side, the community outreach side, but a big part of the community outreach side was I worked with a team of artists to create a portable natural history museum out of old 19th century sea chests. Um, so I worked with a fellow in Florida named Sean Miller, and Sean uh, is an artist and designer who uh, makes portable museums. And then I worked with um, a filmmaker uh, from New Orleans um, named Monique Verdon. She's an activist and Native American filmmaker, and so she created a documentary about kind of the impact of the oil spill on her people in Point Ashen. 
her family members, and then an, um, an artist, a video, new media artist named Rachel Mayori in California who came and interviewed politicians and activists and oil field workers and then animated them as the gulf critters that they wanted to be <laughs> and mm. talking about the oil spill. And then um, just loads of other people, Prasanta Chakrabarti uh, at LSU, who's the curator of fishes. Um, he and I were doing all the fish science together. And um, so it was really a giant team project. And so by being able to drag this portable museum to festivals and marinas and, and different areas, it really became a, an olive branch to, to meet people and to try to talk to them about their, you know, what they saw, how they perceived the impact of the oil spill, and also if they thought that things had come back or things were better. Uh, in some cases, some, some fishermen thought that um, some stocks had, had come back to better than before the oil spill. Um, and then secondly, um, we were able to get lots of interesting specimens from folks. And in fact, in um, on one of the field trips, we did find one of the missing species. So that was a really encouraging sample of, and, and, and I would say a success story for how I think an art and science project can engage communities and then work with those communities to become really like citizen scientists and then let them actually, you know, refine the species, which was really great. Yeah. So 14 species on your uh, Gulf of Mexico wanted list, right? Well, now we're down to 13. Okay. So we found at least one more. And we I, we think we've, we've gotten some photographs from divers of another of another one and some other anecdotal evidence. So right now we're working on the, on the follow-up paper for that research. So it's now the, the 10 years later. And we're trying to work again with shrimpers and fishermen and divers and other folks to see if they have some other records. And the way this project is, is now continuing is uh, there's a bunch of, the, there's several of the species that, have, that you know, we don't have records of since the oil spill, but there's several that we don't know anything about in the first place. One example, there's a, there's a little tiny deep water um, fish called a deep water Florida dreamer. So it looks a little bit like a deep water angler fish. Like you remember in Saving Nemo, mm -hmm. there was that big fish that had the lantern on top oh, that was yes. chasing Nemo around with the big the, teeth. Yeah, the deep water. one of those with a yeah. giant mouth, right? So huge head, giant mouth, little floating like um, light on its head, and it looks super scary, except it's only about two inches long. <laughs> <laughs> so one of those was caught on uh, April 21st, 1954, off the coast of Pensacola in a net. It was never found again. So it's just this one specimen. It's now in the Smithsonian. But that's the only, you know, it's endemic to the Gulf of Mexico. It's that one specimen. It was caught once, and we know absolutely nothing about it. It was caught just that one time. So it's, that's kind of, that's the way we're continuing the project, is looking at these other endemics and then trying to encourage folks to, to just look a little deeper and at the life that's in the Gulf of Mexico and help us, like, understand it more. Here is the Gulf of Mexico's most wanted list, 13 species that haven't been seen since the 2010 oil spill.
Have you ended up with a spread fin skate in your trawling net? How about a Mexican goby or a salt marsh top minnow in your bycatch? Has an Erkson's eel or a red-faced moray eel slithered by your boat? Maybe it was just a king snake eel. Keep an eye out for the unnamed tagfish and you can name it after yourself. If you end up with a black driftfish or a key brotula on the line, don't eat it, report it. Oh, and a beauty like the Yucatan flagfish or the Mardi Gras race could turn the aquarium world upside down with their distinct coloring. Ah, perhaps an exotic deep water species like the tiny French fin lantern shark is more challenging to you? Just watch out that you don't end up using the Yucatan killifish as bait. If you see these species, please report them to the LSU Museum of Natural Science and Dr. Prasanta Chakrabarti. There was a recent report out talking about how there are still several species who have not fully recovered. And you know, there's speculation that like dolphin populations may still take several more generations to fully recover from the oil spill. Sure. Yeah. You know, and 10 years later, there's, you know, there's uh, something I think, um, I hope folks realize is science just can't happen fast sometimes. I mean, I know we're in this big crunch right now to try to find a vaccine for this virus that's having such an impact, but it's, you know, it's more or less, it's, it's got to take the time it needs to do it right. And it's the same for this oil spill. We don't know the full impacts. Ten years later, we're still trying to understand the impact. So it's, it may take another ten years before, before we fully understand, if we ever fully understand how um, that one spill had such a, such a tremendous impact on, on such an important environment like the Gulf of Mexico. But what, in your mind, from both your science background and your artistic uh, sensibilities, what makes the Gulf of Mexico so important and so vibrant? Oh, well, it's, I think it's complicated. It's um, One, it's the sheer volume of different ecosystems that are found in a big environment like that. I mean, we're talking, like, I know... We typically think of the Gulf of Mexico as not part of the Caribbean, but it's really the Northern Caribbean, which is one of the most productive parts of the planet, right? So you've got all these tremendous number of biodiversity that's there. Then you've got all these different habitats that are found in the Gulf, in the Caribbean. And then you've got, you know, all these different tributaries like the Atchafalaya and the Mississippi and just on and on. So you've got all these different types of places and ways for life to exist there so it really becomes a nursery and then you look at louisiana we have these incredible marshland habitats which has become these remarkable nurseries for young fish um so i think i think just the fact that there's so many different types of habitats for one there's so much um diversity and the way that water's flowing in and out the hydrology of that system um I mean, it's dynamic, and it's incredible, and it's and it's incredibly resilient. You know, um, the, the largest fishery on the planet is found in the Gulf of Mexico. It's the, the um, bunky fish. Are you familiar with those? No, I don't know. I don't think I am. Bunker fishery, which apparently is the largest fishery on the planet. So okay. bunker is like Menhaden is another name for it. It's a it's oh a okay yeah Menhaden yes I'm familiar yeah. yeah and yeah. so up north people call Menhaden but um so that by volume so just imagine that's all in in one area in the Gulf of Mexico and these are not even fish that we're consuming we're using the oil for vitamins and mineral and then they're using it for fertilizers and then they're using it for pet foods so just to give you a sense of like 
how you know how we're really utilizing. I think hard for folks unless they're out there to really realize how much diversity in life is there and how we're so connected to the Gulf of Mexico unless you kind of take the time to, to really look into it. But so many, like I've traced Gulf of Mexico species, like as a, as a project I worked on a few years ago, I found Gulf species being sold at markets throughout Western Europe. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's set, like we're even exporting our, our seafood uh, to all over the world. Apparently we're exporting some of our shrimp to Asia as well. And um, so it's just a, an incredible resource. And as such, I think like the more that we learn about it and see it as a resource, maybe the more that we'll learn to take care of it. So you mentioned this little this little guy that was first and only caught in the 1950s who looks terrifying, except, you know, he's two inches long. What other... <laughs> What other um, of the species in the Gulf of Mexico stand out? Either some of those 13 um, that are still missing since the oil spill or some of those others that kind of randomly um, documented uh, creatures from the Gulf of Mexico really stand out for you? Oh, there's so many. I mean, there's, um, you know, hundreds of different species of fish, arguably thousands, and many of which we still don't even know about. Um, I mean, just from my experience of looking for some of these missing ones, one of them is called a fringe limb lantern shark. So here you've got this little shark, which is a type of cookie cutter shark. And it's called a cookie cutter shark because the way its um, mouth is shaped, it takes a cookie cutter bite out of larger animals like whales and dolphins and things like that. So it'll just chomp over and just take a little bite <laughs> and then <laughs> swim away. Um, so that whole group, the cookie cutter sharks are amazing. Lantern sharks. So these are little glow-in-the-dark sharks that live in totally deep water. And that's the other thing. When you get down to the twilight zone, what's called the twilight zone in the Gulf, there's this whole other kind of amazing dynamic of life that never sees light. And we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about that point, that part of the Gulf of Mexico. So like, and the number of species there that we still are looking for and want to describe. But there's so many, I mean, there's like these huge skates called um, leaf-nosed lake skates that they have these really interesting shapes. Like they just have these huge fins. Um, there's these crazy hagfish. Have you ever heard of a hagfish before? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. They're <laughs> they're bizarre and amazing. I mean, they're basically like these super ancient vertebrates. They have a skull but no real backbone. So they're kind of like vertebrates, but they're kind of not, but they kind of are. And there's <laughs> these primitive forms. I mean, there's several species that live in the Gulf. Um, so I don't know. It's just so many different things you start to look at. Um, there's deep water dragonfish. Um, there's that's another neat one that's missing. There was one that was collected in 1960. That's a type of deep water dragonfish that again is only about three inches long that nobody's seen since. Um, so there's just so many things still to learn, and that's what I encourage uh, folks just to just to take the time to try to learn as much as you can and and spend as much time out there and thinking about the way that we're really connected to the Gulf and why it's so special. It makes living in Louisiana such as, you know, an additionally special place. 
with your work in the Gulf of Mexico, were there any um, success stories or notable research moments that came out of? Oh, there's lots. I mean, there's there's working with um, students and then uh, you know shrimpers and fishermen, and just some of those great stories and, and getting to know people and being invited to blessing of the fleet and um, being invited to the Louisiana State Senate to, to be able to present on their research and show some of the art. Um, had a really interesting experience with this big installation called Collapse, which was a response to the oil spill. And it was shown in New York in 2012. And Senator Bill Nelson from Florida came to see the show. So it was really um, fantastic that that kind of an art science project could, you know, somehow reach that level of, of communication with um uh, politics. So he let us know beforehand that he was coming, and so I was able to prepare a dossier of, of research, ongoing research that was happening in the Gulf of Mexico, and um, that was really, really special. More than half of the 77 endemic species from the Gulf of Mexico have not been officially collected since the 2010 oil spill. Of these, Nine species have not been collected since before 1980. Another eight species have not been collected since the 1980s, and two haven't been seen since the 1990s. Um, so I guess one thing if people want to uh, continue to stay in touch is one of the best ways is through social media. You can see through the Atelier de la Nature, we're on Facebook, uh, and also my studio, Brendan Bellinger Studio, is on Facebook, so updated quite often, and um, now more than ever, I'm doing a lot more um, talks online, so you can catch <laughs> talks online through Facebook, and some of the programming that we're doing at Atelier uh, on Facebook as well. In closing today, we want to acknowledge the loss of 11 people when the Deepwater Horizon oil rig exploded on April 20, 2010. Jason Anderson, age 35, from Midfield, Texas, husband and father. Aaron Dale Burkeen, age 37, of Philadelphia, Mississippi, husband and father. Donald Clark, age 49, of Newellton, Louisiana, husband and father. Stephen Ray Curtis, age 39, from Georgetown, Louisiana, husband, father, grandfather, U.S. Marine veteran. Roy Wyatt Kemp, age 27, of Jonesville, Louisiana, husband and father. Carl Dale Kleppinger, Jr., age 38, of Natchez, Mississippi, husband, father, U.S. Army veteran. Gordon Lewis Jones, age 28, from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, husband and father. Keith Blair Manuel, age 56, of Gonzales, Louisiana, husband and father. Dewey Rivette, age 48, of State Line, Mississippi, husband and father. Shane Roshto, age 22, from Liberty, Mississippi, husband and father. Adam Weezy, age 24, from Yorktown, Texas, a committed family man.
Life in the Gulf of Mexico goes on, despite man-made disasters and natural weather events. What happens next depends on all of us. What will you do to protect the Gulf of Mexico and Louisiana's coastal wetlands? This podcast is brought to you by the Coastal Wetlands Planning, Protection, and Restoration Act. The QIPRA program is a federal legislation program enacted in 1990 designed to identify, prepare, and fund construction of coastal wetlands restoration projects. Since its inception, over 200 coastal restoration or protection projects have been authorized. For more information about the QIPRA program, find us online at lacoast.gov. Become our friend on Facebook or follow along in our Instagram adventures at quipra underscore outreach. We want to know what you're thinking. What are your questions and concerns about the coastal wetlands of Louisiana? Drop us a line on social media or email us directly at cwppra at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed on this or any program on AOC Podcast Network do not reflect the views and opinions of IPF Consolidated Government, Cox Communications, LUS Fiber, AOC Community Media, its board of directors, or its staff. To learn more about becoming a community media producer, visit us on the web at aocinc.org.